Well, indeed, we have a glorious hope, those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? A living hope. And we long for that day when we will see Him face to face in glory. I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. For many months we have been making our way through this wonderful gospel and we find ourselves this morning in chapter 14. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they regarded him as a prophet. And when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Thereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. And when Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. And when the multitudes heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Dear friends, every man living in sin lives in misery. I might say it differently. Every man who is miserable is living in sin. Yes, as the scriptures tell us, there is pleasure in sin for a season, but those seasons are very short lived. Indeed, there is, as the Bible says, a way that seems right to a man. But the end is death, then judgment. And every sinner knows that it's coming, regardless of what they say. And because of that internal awareness, there is a terror that occurs in the conscience of those that are guilty. And that's why this morning I would like to title this sermon, The Terrors of a Guilty Conscience, as we will see them at work in the life of the wicked King Herod. Try as he may, a sinner can no more distance himself from guilt than outrun his shadow. With every act of rebellion against a holy God, regardless of the pleasure that is there, there will be a multiplied burden of guilt placed upon a sinner's back. And no matter how hard he endeavors to suppress the truth, In unrighteousness, as Romans 1 tells us, the omniscient, holy God 
beams the light of his truth upon that individual like a laser. And he cannot escape it. All he can do is learn to ignore it. You know, the conscience is a marvelous thing that God has given us. It's like an alarm system that warns us when we violate God's standard. In fact, we know that the law of God is written on the heart of every man and every woman, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their faith in Christ. In Romans 2 and verse 15, we read that their conscience bears witness and their thoughts alternately accuse or defend them. And it's an amazing thing, this conscience. You know, if you ignore the signals of your conscience long enough, you will eventually silence it. Because the conscience is like an idiot light in a car. We all know what that is. When the little light comes on on your dashboard and it says, check engine soon. If you don't pay attention to that light, eventually something will happen in the engine. But very often what people do is they ignore the idiot light of their conscience until finally their spiritual life blows up. We read, for example, in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2 about false teachers. And it tells us there about the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Seared, cauterized is the word. And it's the idea of ignoring your conscience so long that it's as if it has been seared. And you know if you sear flesh, if you cauterize flesh, you will destroy all of the nerve endings and you'll have nothing but scar tissue. And so that text is speaking about people that become utterly insensitive to truth. They become totally desensitized. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul speaks of unbelievers and it says, being past feeling, having have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all cleanness, uncleanness with greediness. And so this is the idea of ignoring your conscience. And this is the sad fate of many fools, such as Herod the Tetrarch, that ruled during the ministry of Jesus. A man ruled by his lusts and tormented by his guilt. Let me give you the context of this text. Herod was the son of an exceedingly wicked Gentile ruler, Herod the Great, who was so wicked he had been known to kill his own family members. He was the king that tried to kill all of the infants in Bethlehem to hopefully eradicate the threat of a Messiah king that would be a threat to his political appointment. He was an Edomian king, a descendant of Esau. Interestingly enough, the United States is continuing to fight his descendants in the Middle East to this day. Herod was the Tetrarch, which basically means a ruler of a fourth part. He was also, by the way, known as Herod Antipas. And he was, as I say, the son of Herod the Great by Herod's fourth wife. And he was also the half-brother of Philip, who was uh, the son of his father's third wife. Now, this gets really complicated, and I don't want to get into all of the family tree because, frankly, it doesn't fork very much if you begin to study it. You will see a terrible web of incest here. But Herod was 
This tetrarch, a small kind of a puppet ruler for Rome and the land of Palestine, he really wasn't a true king like his father before him. And when his father died, Rome divided up that particular area, that little kingdom of Palestine amongst three of the sons, Antipas, which is the one we're looking at today, and his half-brothers, Philip and Archelaus. And during the ministry of Jesus, Herod was serving his 32nd year of rule. And he spent most of his time indulging himself with every imaginable pleasure. He lived much of his time in the fortress palace of Macarius, which is seven miles east of the northern tip of the Dead Sea, or in his palace in Tiberias on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Those of us that have been to the Holy Land have visited those places and know the extravagant wealth of those particular palaces. Well, Herod Antipas was married to every man's nightmare, a wicked, controlling shrew that led him around by the nose, a woman by the name of Herodias. And Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus, another brother of Herod Antipas. Are you with me? (laughs) And so she originally now married Philip, who was her father's brother. And eventually she was seduced by her uncle, Herod Antipas, her husband's half-brother, and left Philip to marry him. So Herodias leaves Philip along with her daughter Salome, and we know that that was her daughter's name because of uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian's record of that. We don't read that in the Bible. And so Herodias leaves Philip and goes and lives with Herod Antipas with her daughter Salome. Again, a terrible web of incest and immorality, a wickedness that was eventually confronted by John the Baptist. And with this background, I hope you'll better be able to understand the text here this morning, because there is an intriguing story here, dear friends, that exposes the terror of guilt that occurs and an evil, wicked conscience. There's three things that I pray that we will all see as we look at this historical narrative. First of all, that we'll understand the fear that haunts the wicked. Secondly, the cost of discipleship. And thirdly, the love of the shepherd. First, as we look at the first few verses, we understand a little bit of what predisposes this fear that begins to occur in the heart of wicked Herod. Notice in verse one, it says at that time, by the way, that is that refers to a specific season or a unique period of time. And in this context, this it would be the season in the life and ministry of Jesus where hostilities were mounting and yet he was being dogged by thousands of people wanting to see more miracles And so they're they're following him. And so this is the season that is being referred to here. At that time, at that season, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So obviously Herod knew of what was going on with Jesus and he was afraid. Now, like most political 
leaders in history, Herod was completely ignorant of what God was doing in his plan of redemption. He was too obsessed with his own pursuit of self-gratification to seek the Lord. He was clueless about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. But the facts were overwhelming that Jesus was supernatural. The facts pertaining to the veracity of Jesus' miracles were undeniable. So Herod knew that something supernatural was at work. But like all wicked men, he spent every waking moment suppressing the truth of who God is, suppressing his conscience, trying to justify his sin, avoiding the haunting reality that he had murdered a prophet of the Most High God, John the Baptist. Now, in Mark's gospel, we're told that when Herodias wanted to have him put to death, Herod was afraid of John. In fact, we read this in Mark chapter 6 and verse 20. Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. In other words, Herod keeps John safe now, even though he was imprisoned. He doesn't kill him. And he goes on to say, and when he heard him, referring to John the Baptist, he was very perplexed. This gives me great insight into what was going on with Herod. The word perplexed means to be in doubt in the original language. It means to be at a loss. And in this context, it would be a term to help us understand that he was at a loss concerning his spiritual condition. The implication here of being in a perpetual state of anxiety. The grammar helps us see that he was in a perpetual state of turmoil concerning what John was saying and who he was and who God was and so on. However, that text in Mark 6.20 goes on to say, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Isn't that interesting? So Herod respected John the Baptist, although he was incarcerated in a rancid dungeon. He protected him from death. And he met with him, obviously, on more than one occasion to hear his message, certainly of repentance and to be confronted about his incestuous immorality with Herodias. And like so many people today, Herod had a morbid curiosity about the supernatural, about the gospel of Christ, about different things that John would be telling him with respect to the Messiah. But he did not have a genuine passion for truth which would lead him to salvation. Luke's account also helps us understand Herod's reaction to Jesus after he had murdered John the Baptist. In Luke 9, beginning in verse, beginning in verse 7, we read, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed. Here we have a similar term as used in Mark, which means to be utterly at a loss. Herod was, was, was utterly at a loss. He was trapped. It's the idea of being paralyzed. It literally has this term has the idea of of being unable to find a way out of something. And the grammar here again indicates that it was a continual state of his mind. And that text goes on to say, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. So, in other words, rumors were flying everywhere to try to explain who Jesus was. And Herod was gripped with fear. 
Luke goes on to say in verse nine, and Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him, referring to Jesus. But as we read the text, Jesus avoids Herod and allows him to waller in the mire of his misery. By the way, as a footnote, there was a time we read when the Pharisees came and warned Jesus that Herod wanted to kill him. And no doubt they wanted to scare Jesus and hopefully he would, you know, get out of Dodge, so to speak, because they were tired of messing with him. And Jesus sent a message through them back to Herod in Luke 13, 32, when he says, go and tell that fox, which, by the way, was a rabbinical expression for someone who was crafty and worthless. Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. In other words, you tell Herod that you are utterly powerless to dictate what I will and will not do. I am on a divine timetable. And certainly this was a blatant insult to the pompous little king from the king of kings. So Jesus abandoned him to the torments of the unsolved mystery of who Jesus was. Later, by the way, they met for the first time after Jesus' appearance before the Sanhedrin and Pilate right prior to his crucifixion. We read about it in Luke 23, beginning in verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he, referring to Jesus, answered him nothing. The text goes on to say in verse 11, And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now, that's a little background. Back to Matthew 14, where we read of this tragic story of what happened to John the Baptist. In verse 3, we see that Herod arrested the forerunner of the Messiah. He puts him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. It's interesting that Matthew would put that in there to remind you again of the incestuous relationship here. Verse four, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So obviously, this was the topic of many conversations that John the Baptist had with Herod. And I'm sure as I kind of read between the lines and I don't want to be dogmatic with this, but I think this is a tenable perspective of what was going on. I believe that Herodias got wind of all of this and she was inflamed with rage. You know, sinful people hate the light of divine holiness that exposes their sin. But I might add that I've known many trollops like Herodias, and they are not terribly bothered about the criticism of of their immorality. And in fact, they tend to flaunt it. They kind of like that type of negative attention. But boy, they are absolutely obsessed with anyone that might in any way destroy their little living arrangement, their position and their privilege that they have gained through their wicked, immoral sexuality. And I'm sure she feared that perhaps her husband might repent. If he kept listening to this fool long enough, if he kept him alive, 
And after all, I want him dead. Why is he keeping him alive? Why does he keep meeting with him? Why does he seem to respect him and even acknowledge that he is a holy and righteous man? I don't like this. This guy needs to go. By the way, I've noticed over the years that wicked spouses will go to almost any length to prevent their husband or their wife from embracing Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. You know, misery loves company, doesn't it? It loves company and sinners resent saints because there is no fellowship with darkness and light. And isn't it interesting as you think about hell, hell is the total absence of light and it's total isolation. And yet heaven is the very opposite. There is glorious fellowship, fellowship that is there. And we read about the light of the glory of God that is there when the redeemed, for example, inhabit the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22, 5. There's no need of the light, it says, of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them. But again, this wicked woman did not want the light of truth. She didn't want to have anything to do with John the Baptist. She hated him for fear that he might upset her little arrangement there as the puppet queen. So Herodias had nothing but contempt for John the Baptist. And yet Herod protected him at some level, even though he was incarcerated. There was some kind of a respect, at least an intrigue that was there. But also in verse 5, it says that although he wanted to put him to death, probably to appease his nagging wife, he feared the multitude because they regarded him as a prophet. Friends, the only thing worse than being henpecked in your palace is being stoned outside of it. And so I'm certain that Herod was afraid that John the Baptist might even stir up a rebellion against him. And so Herod's between a rock and a hard place, as we would put it in our vernacular. In verse 6, we read that Herod's birthday comes along. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, folks, here's where we want to pay very close attention as to what the Spirit of God is telling us. Think about it. Herodias was so determined to silence the prophet of God that she conspires with her wicked daughter to trick Herod with a diabolical plot and force him to do her bidding. Here's how it works. The occasion, of course, is Herod's birthday. And we know, according to Roman culture, that this was typically a stag party, especially with dignitaries that were brought in. It would be complete with erotic dancers, gluttony, drunkenness, all manner of debauchery. Ultimately, they would end up uh, in, in, in an orgy, kind of the MTV spring break type of debauchery that we see on television and read about. And Salome now, his stepdaughter, verse 6, danced before them and pleased Herod. Pleased means she excited him. That term is a euphemism for sexual arousal. And like all men that become intoxicated with lust and liquor, Herod lost all sense of self-control and dignity. He melted like hot wax before the fire of her seduction. And no doubt, in an effort to get her to disrobe even more, he says in verse 7, thereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever 
she asked. The trap had been set. Now it was to be sprung. By the way, what a perfect illustration of the cunning schemes of the enemy who studies the well-worn paths of men's weaknesses and then ingeniously lines them with seemingly irresistible temptations to ensnare them in sin and to destroy them. And here I want to pause for a few minutes and speak to you men. Because I fear that many times we underestimate the power of lust, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. We are told in Second Timothy 2 that we need to flee from youthful lusts. And the idea is to see how far you can possibly run and keep on running from anything that would ensnare you, entrap you in immorality. This is especially true with sexual temptation. Men, we must learn to run from anything that arouses our passions, lest we succumb to the same fate as many of the rutting bucks that we hunt. You know how that works. The bucks abandon their sense of preservation and protection in the heat of passion. And they wander into the wrong place only to feel an arrow pierce their heart. And especially you young men, as you enjoy the strength of your vigor with active appetites that are in need of restraint, you are the most vulnerable. Lust, dear men, is like a headstrong stallion. And if you're not careful, if you slack the reins of watchfulness and give him his head, He will get away from you in a fury and you'll not be able to stop him. I'm reminded of James's warning to Christians in James 1.14. He says, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Proverbs 4 and verse 23, we read, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And in verse 25 He says, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Men, the point there is run from any image or any young woman who is obviously trying to catch your eye for her heart is wicked and she is trying to ensnare you. And like dry kindling in a summer forest, the slightest spark could ignite the dry kindling, especially of a young man, into a raging fire that he'll not be able to put out. That's why Proverbs 6.27 says that when you commit an act of immorality, whether it's an act of looking at a pornographic website, a pornographic magazine, or even being involved in some immoral way with another woman, you, according to Scripture, take fire into your bosom. Men, we've got to learn to mortify our flesh. Only then will we ever be able to contain it. We've got to be like Job who made a covenant with his eyes not to look upon a woman to lust. Richard Baxter, an old Puritan that I read from time to time in his great Christian directory. One of the greatest books ever written on Christian counseling says this. 
Remember that the eye being the noblest and yet the most dangerous sense must have the strictest watch. And he went on to say, what a flood of grief did David let into his heart by one unlawful look. Men, I, I, I would encourage you to beg God daily to help you restrain your eyes and to deliver you from temptation. And instead, to help you employ your eyes continually on the pursuit of holiness. I would pray that you would be like the psalmist in 119 verse 37 that prayed, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in thy ways. And later in verse 18 to say, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Keep me from looking at this and instead help me to look at this. How many men have, as Peter says in Second Peter 2.14, eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Every time they see a young woman that is attractive, they follow her everywhere she goes. Every time they have an opportunity to see something on television that is titillating, they find themselves obsessed with it. And how many women are equally guilty by trying to capture men with their immodest dress, to try to capture their gaze? Men, may I encourage you as your pastor be forever suspect of your own spirituality because you are the most vulnerable when you think you are strong. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Lest he fall. And remember that sexual sin is rooted in the imaginations. It's rooted in the heart. If you're going to destroy the weed, you've got to destroy the root. In Proverbs 6, verse 24, we read, keep from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not, now catch this, desire her beauty in your heart. You don't fantasize about it. You don't imagine it. He goes on to say, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. And my heart is heavy as I give you this warning, for I fear that some of you will not listen and be like the fool described in Proverbs 7 and even like the fool that Herod was. In Proverbs 7, verse 21, we read this. Speaking of the immoral woman, with her many persuasions, she entices him, referring to the young man. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Well, Herod was this kind of a fool, a slave to his passions, seduced by his stepdaughter. I'll give you whatever you ask. And in verse 8, and having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. Now, folks, here we witness 
the very essence of hypocrisy, uh, a supreme example of, of self-righteous duplicity, uh, a man who was notorious for his nefarious deeds, a wicked man, a cunning man, a liar. And now all of a sudden he does not want to be perceived as one who would dare break a promise. As we would say, give me a break. Especially in front of all of the dignitaries at his party, he doesn't want to be embarrassed here. And so he acquiesces to the wicked requests. And as the story says, he had John beheaded. And here we read of just a savage, barbaric act, a macabre act, a ghoulish act. Not only is he beheaded, but his head is brought out to his guests on a platter. What a wicked spectacle, further betraying just the depths of their depravity. By the way, this was not at all uncommon in Middle Eastern culture. All you have to do is watch the news and you know that a lot of this goes on even to this day. But one of Herodias's ancestors, a man by the name of Alexander Junius, a number of years later crucified 800 rebels as entertainment for the guests that he was hosting. And while these men were hanging on their crosses, dying, he had his soldiers take their wives and their children and slay them before their eyes. That's the type of wickedness that you deal with when depravity goes to its ultimate ends. So Herod had to live now with the image of, of his evil atrocity, of what he did to John the Baptist. No doubt he had visions that laid siege to the great stone walls of denial and justification that surrounded his hard heart. But, but those walls erected to somehow silence his guilt, as so often people do, eventually became ramparts of, self, of a self-made prison, prison in which the wicked now have to live in misery. And no doubt it was because of this that he was terrified at who Jesus was. John Calvin said this of Herod's perplexity and fear concerning Jesus. And I quote, as bad consciences are wont to tremble and hesitate and turn with every wind. He readily believed what he dreaded with such blind terrors. God frequently alarms wicked men so that after all the pains they take to harden themselves and to escape agitation, their internal executioner gives them no rest, but chastises them with severity. Friends, may I give you a solemn warning as we think about this text? Don't ever silence your conscience, lest you become a fugitive of your own heart and eventually find yourself imprisoned in the dungeon of some life dominating sin and then eventually lose all that is precious to you. And perhaps even lose your life. The pangs of a guilty conscience are severe. And the only thing that soothes that pain is confession and repentance. Remember the psalmist, as David had been confronted with his sin in Psalm 32, 3, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Boy, there's the physiological consequences of a guilty conscience. He goes on to say, for day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. 
But then I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. So indeed, here we see that conviction is a terrifying reality for the wicked, something that they live with, that gnaws at their soul. The, feel, the, the guilty are feeling guilty because they are guilty. And yet what joy there is when you confess your sin, when you acknowledge your sin and you allow the Lord to forgive you and ask for that forgiveness. And there's that wonderful cleansing that takes place. What grace there is in Christ Jesus. But as we look at this text, we see two other marvelous truths woven into the tapestry of this narrative. Notice also the cost of discipleship. I'm really struck with this. As I think about John the Baptist, as I meditated about what it would have been like to be in that dungeon area, and I've been to that place, I I, I know what that looks like. And verse 4 says, For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. In other words, it had been an ongoing type type of thing. And I think about what a contrast this is to the typical advisors of kings who are nothing more than terrified sycophants who bow to his every whim and never challenge him because they're afraid that they'll lose their life or maybe lose their job. And what a contrast to modern day ministers even of the gospel who are afraid to speak the truth. And I must confess there are are times where I battle this in my own heart. Because I know how much easier it would be on me if I'd compromise just a little bit. If I would see what the Lord would have me say and then soften it a bit. To make sure that nobody gets offended. To make sure that nobody leaves the church. Don't draw any hard lines because after all, if you draw a line, there's going to be people on either side and then there's conflict and you don't want that. What a temptation that is for all of us, right? Today, in modern day ministries in many churches, I have found that ministers very often often will carefully choose every word so as not to offend even the vilest sinner. And success is basically measured solely by numbers of people. So in order to produce great numbers, you've got to soften the message so that they will feel comfortable with it. And therefore, eliminate the cost of discipleship. When the Lord says, if any man wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and even do it daily and follow me. New churches are springing up all over the place. I know of some. I've talked with some of the people and I found that they have no doctrinal statement. This is a a very interesting thing to me and and really no doctrinal preaching. It's they follow the marketing mindset that basically says you've got to satisfy the consumer and you all are consumers. Okay, that's the way they would perceive you. And so, therefore, anything that the consumer doesn't like has to be jettisoned. That's the philosophy of modern evangelical pragmatism. And so you've got to poll your customers You've got to find out what these seekers want. And certainly you're going to find out that they have no appetite for biblical truth. They're going to be like Herod and Herodias. They don't want to hear a John the Baptist. And so they would rather hear about things such as loneliness, codependency, poor self-esteem, anger management, depression, 
sexual addictions, drug and alcohol addictions, and so on. All of which the psychological community insists cause personality disorders and a myriad of syndromes that they have concocted to justify their profession. And so, biblically, we read something very different, by the way, that the source of all these things is human depravity, but people don't want to hear that. And so, church services are filled with John the Baptists? No. They're filled with ear-tickling preachers. And you will see the multimedia presentations and mimes and skits and magic. Nothing is considered inappropriate. The music ranges from disco to rap, from country to rock and roll oldies with typically very poor musicianship. And churches now are nothing more than kind of a reflection of a of a pseudo Christian paganism. That frankly, perfectly illustrates the Laodicean apostasy of of Revelation 3, the church that made God vomit. Very few John the Baptists today. John MacArthur has said in his excellent book, Ashamed of the Gospel, and I quote, and by the way, this is the type of stuff that, that I hear all the time as a pastor. I get two or three seminars or books or whatever that people want me to go to to learn how to do these things. But MacArthur speaks of this, and I quote, Church ministry is being completely revamped in an attempt to make it more appealing to unbelievers. The experts are now telling us that pastors and church leaders who want to be successful must concentrate their energies in this new direction. Provide non-Christians with an agreeable, inoffensive environment. Give them freedom, tolerance, and anonymity. Always be positive and benevolent. And if you must have a sermon, keep it brief and amusing. Don't be preachy or authoritative. Above all, keep everyone entertained. Churches following this pattern will see numerical growth, we're assured. Those that ignore it are doomed to decline, end quote. And certainly MacArthur addresses that, as do many others, and the dangers of that philosophy. I was reading one advertisement of a church just to help you see the contrast between the cost of discipleship that is truly required of us if we're truly going to follow Christ, as we've seen in the life of John the Baptist, versus what we see in the trends of neo-evangelicalism today. One church says of itself, quote, the sermons in our church are relevant, upbeat, and best of all, short. You won't hear a lot of preaching about sin and damnation and hellfire. Preaching here doesn't sound like preaching. It is sophisticated, urbane, and friendly talk. It breaks all the stereotypes, end quote. Another church said services at, and it names their church, have an informal feeling. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make them feel welcome, not drive them away, end quote. This is the mindset. What a radical difference from John the Baptist, who was willing to pay even the ultimate price for following Christ. One church that I asked about uh, having a doctrinal statement, I'll never forget the, the response. I said, well, we're not into that. I thought, well, that's an interesting, you're not into that. And, and immediately my mind goes to 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul says, it talks about the household of God, that it is the pillar and support of the truth. And Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 not to compromise in difficult times. He said, preach the word. 
He says, be ready in season and out of season, which means when it's popular and when it's not. And he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort and with great patience and instruction. I mean, my job description is very clear and I'm glad the Lord made it that way. But it's so different in so many churches today. Of course, people don't want to hear sound teaching because it confronts and it rebukes sinful lifestyles. They would rather to accumulate for themselves ear tickling preachers, not a John the Baptist. Again, I think of what Paul said to pastors in terms of our duty with regard to doctrinal preaching, sound teaching, doctrinal teaching. in First Timothy one, nine through eleven. Here's what he said. To young Pastor Timothy and therefore to all pastors, don't forget that the law is not made for righteous. In other words, the scripture is not made for righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, beloved, may I remind you that the call to discipleship may be costly in this life, but it will reap infinitely glorious rewards. Don't be afraid of man. Don't even be afraid of the king. Never be ashamed of the gospel. Again, I'm reminded of Jesus' example, and there are so many. But in John 6, we read about how the thousands of people were following Jesus. Great multitudes. And what did he do? Tickle their ears? No, he used that as an opportunity to teach them doctrine, to give them the truth. And in that particular case, in John 6, he talks about how that God is sovereign over salvation, not man, that he is the one that has chosen his elect in eternity past, a topic that most people don't like to to, to ever hear, taught that men will never choose him unless he has first chosen them, that he is the bread of life and so on. And what was the result of all of that? In John 6, 66, we read, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Folks, the point is this. Preaching has nothing to do. Truth has nothing to do with being non-offensive and filling up churches. There is a huge difference between a church and a crowd And there is a cost to discipleship, and we see a profound example of that in the life of John the Baptist. He knew the cost, but he would not compromise. And in God's compassionate providence, he was delivered from the squalor of Herod's dungeon. And as I think about it, before his head hit the ground... His soul was enjoying the glories of paradise. May I draw you to one final thought as we look at this text, and that is the love of the shepherd. Notice in verses 12 and 13, he says, And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. By the way, obviously, the body had been discarded in a further act of gruesome sacrilege. goes on to say, And they went and reported to Jesus. And when Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. And when the multitudes heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. By the way, Mark's gospel expands upon this. We see that Jesus was by himself, but with his disciples. 
And they, the, together they, they withdrew to a lonely place, Mark 6:31. They withdrew to a lonely place and rested a while for, to rest for a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. In other words, they were just being bombarded with the multitudes of people, overwhelmed with the rigors of ministry. Now, geographically, we know that Jesus gets into a boat. He was in the area of Capernaum and he gets into the boat with the disciples to somehow get away from all the crowd. They couldn't follow him there. And he goes out into the Sea of Galilee and we know that he went about four miles, which would have been almost eight miles if you were to traverse it on land. By the way, the text indicates that uh, that the people could see the boat and many of them ran and some of them got to where the boat was going even before Jesus did. This gives you an idea of the type of popularity that he had, at least with respect to the miracles that he performed. They didn't want anything to do with the truth, but they wanted, you know, to have free food and and have a great show. But as I think about this, Jesus knew what his disciples were thinking. The disciples were thinking, my goodness, John the Baptist has been beheaded. We knew he's been in a dungeon in the in King Herod's dungeon. And now he's been beheaded. The forerunner of the Messiah. And the Lord knew that their hearts were gripped with fear. He knew that they were thinking that the same fate would probably be theirs. And by the way, certainly John the Baptist was the first martyr. And Jesus would be the next one to to be killed. You know, all of the rest of those men died as martyrs. All except Judas Iscariot and John, who was exiled. But all of them died as martyrs. But I think of just the the infinite love of the shepherd to anticipate what's going on in the hearts and the minds of his people. To know that these men were not only weary from ministry, but they were also gripped with fear and gripped with a sense of perhaps even despair. And so in his infinite love, he takes them away from all of the ministry, all of the hustle and bustle of the crowds, and he attends to their souls. He takes them out into the water, into the boat to encourage them and to prepare them for what lay ahead. The Bible doesn't tell us what he told them, but I'm sure that what he told them was of infinite value to their weary souls, to their fears. This is the love of the good shepherd, isn't it? To anticipate where we ache and where we hurt and what will come about. Perhaps he reminded them of the psalmist's words in Psalm 33 and verse 18. There we read, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him. Because we trust in His holy name. Let Thy loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in Thee. Well, may I conclude this morning by just encouraging you, first of all, for those of you who perhaps are living in the shadows... Those of you that are fugitives 
of a guilty conscience. May I plead with you to run to the cross, to bow before the foot of the cross and to receive the forgiveness and mercy and grace that can be yours when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And child of God, those of you that may be within the sound of my voice this morning, if your conscience is eating at you, if it is inflamed because of some habitual sin, may I plead with you to repent, lest you forfeit blessing in your life, unless you bear the lash of a loving father who loves you as his child, his son or his daughter and chastens you for your good and his glory. Don't live in sin. Listen to your conscience. And may we all be bold and uncompromising as we follow Christ, knowing full well that the Lord is our shepherd, our personal shepherd. And even though at times he may lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to be afraid because he is with us. As the psalmist said in Psalm 34, 7, knowing that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. Let's pray together. Father, as we think back upon this tragic story, we are struck with the depth of depravity, but also we are struck with the enormity of your grace and your mercy and the sovereignty of your redemptive plan. And Lord, in that we have such hope. Lord, speak to each of our hearts today as we examine our own lives, as we listen to our own conscience. Lord, may we repent of anything that would forfeit blessing in our life and rob you of your glory. And Lord, especially for those that do not know you as Savior and Lord, oh, again, Father, how I pray that somehow your, your Holy Spirit will convict them and bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.